Welcome to the Western Vowel Podcast Series, with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Spiritual Warriorship and the Undefended Life and was given by Nahama Greenwald on March 20th, 2021 via Zoom. Nahama is a physical therapist, editor, and musician who for 17 years was a member of the Shri Blues Band, which performed Western Bell music. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Nahama Greenwald. So first of all, I want to extend a warm welcome to everybody and thank you all for being here with me tonight. Um, It's a very tender time right now, but I appreciate each and every one of you and I value your presence and attention. So tonight we will be considering this topic of spiritual warriorship and the undefended life. And I want to begin by reading the write-up that I wrote because it's a good way to just introduce the topic. The qualities of being a spiritual warrior are timeless no matter what culture or age we live in. And yet it is relevant to consider what it means in the current times we live in where change and purification are blowing through our lives like a fierce wind. Being in the midst of wild uncertainty, an epidemic that has gone into its second year, instability caused by the collapsing of old orders and systems, and the growing awareness of what it means to become global citizens, we are called on the path to face it all as warriors. With open-hearted curiosity, intelligent discernment, saying yes to whatever is arising within the field of opposites, and a willingness to let go of the old and embrace the new, even if not yet known. In this talk, we will explore these qualities and more, and in tandem with this, discuss what it means to live an undefended life, not defined by territory, control, or survival, but rather by tender vulnerability and the fire of an awakened heart. So the questions that we want to be asking tonight, the basic questions are, what are the qualities of a spiritual warrior? And what is it to live an undefended life? Each of these could easily be a separate talk. And yet, in the way that I want to speak about them tonight, they actually go hand in hand because living an undefended life in the way that I am going to define it is a quality of being a warrior on the path. So in order to understand what undefended is first, I think it would be beneficial to define what a defended life is. What does it mean to have a defended posturing in the way that we go through life. Well, first of all, it's a life that's defined by survival, 
by being on the defensive, by overreactivity, by the drive to territorialize and control, and the tendency to dominate, to be right, to come out on top, so to speak, to name a few. Here's a quote from my teacher, Lee Lazowick, on survival. Survival, or the threat to survival, is the ground from which humans move, from which they relate to all events in their lives. When someone gets up in the morning, as soon as they are conscious, they are thinking from survival. Everything is a threat. And I think each and every one of us can testify to the truth of that because our survival instincts are always on alert. The mind is always ready to move towards pleasure and away from pain. We jump to protect our territory and safeguard safeguard our opinions. There's our self-importance, our need to be right. Those are all at the forefront of being defended. And we all do this to a greater or lesser degree because we are driven by survival and the dictates of our psychology. However, there's a cost because when everything is a threat, as Lee says, there's a lot in life that we remain buffered against, that we don't see, that we filter out, that we do not engage. And so we find ourselves just living in this narrow and confined range of experience and perception. At the same time, I want to make sure that I acknowledge that in the times that we are living through right now, with everything that's going on, that our sympathetic nervous systems are overactive, our survival instincts are on high alert, and many of us, myself very much included, are experiencing states of heightened anxiety, which certainly revs up the fight or flight nervous system. So it's important to not disregard that, to acknowledge it, to get the help that we need. It calls for patience. It calls for compassion for ourselves and others. So that's not the focus of our talk tonight, but I think it's really important to say that, to acknowledge that that is true for so many of us. So we may feel, well, I have a good reason to be defended because of everything that's going on and maybe in our personal lives as well. Why shouldn't my sympathetic nervous system be on overdrive and my survival instincts be on high alert? Isn't that a a natural response to everything that's going on? And yet, to live an undefended life is to understand the value and the necessity of breakdown, of things falling apart, And to be willing to relinquish control and let things fall apart, let it all fall apart without trying to glue it all back together, without trying to patch it up, fix it, repair it, or being solution-driven. So we relinquish control and we are willing to let go of what is old and outdated. And we wait. We wait for what may not yet be revealed. We wait and we don't know. And this waiting to me is a feminine space. It's it's a space of fertile darkness. It's a space of creative gestation. 
There's a woman I was listening to, she was talking about something similar. And she was saying that this time of waiting where we don't know and things are falling apart, she said, it's a time to bask in the blessings of the mystery. She didn't say it's a time to bite your nails and flail around in the blessings of the mystery. It's a time to bask in the blessings of the mystery. And I love this word because it means we just relax. We let go control and we relax into it. And when we do that, what can arise for us is faith. And also, I would add, what could also arise is a sense of awe and reverence in this time of just basking in the mystery and of not knowing. So to live an undefended life is to embrace this creative tension that exists between breakdown, or we could say death, things falling apart, and on the other side of that, rebirth, renewal, recreation. There's a liminal space. There's a creative tension there. And so in an undefended life, we are willing to live with that and see what arises from that. So to continue on, to live undefended is to live in a state of fluidity, flexibility, and vulnerability. And in this state, there is an acceptance of groundlessness as a principle of reality. And as we know, this state can be very uncomfortable, stressful, it's less certain, it's less stable, it's less fixed, it's less solid. And to take it a step further, I think in an undefended life, that not only do we accept this as a principle of reality, but we actually lean into it. We lean into the state of groundlessness because I think although it's a lot less stable and it could be more uncomfortable, I think it is infinitely more creative and more interesting. And there are so many ways on the path that we can make use of it. So in this undefended state, there's a willingness to relinquish something that the separate self cherishes and identifies with, something that we have armored ourselves with, that we have defined ourselves by. So when I say the separate self, I mean the self that identifies as me. That's how I'm defining it. On the other hand, when we are in a defended state, we are invested in gain, in accumulation, and in having something for ourselves. For example, that could be control, territory, self-importance, being right, being superior, being a victim. Those are just some examples. I want to read a quote by Richard Rohr. I'm sure most of you know who he is. He is a, a radical priest, and I think he's a wise elder as well. This is Richard Rohr. Even after 50 years of practicing contemplation, my immediate response to most situations includes attachment, defensiveness, judgment, control, and analysis. I am better at calculating than contemplating. Most of us start there. The false self seems to have the first gaze at almost everything. The first gaze is seldom compassionate. It is too busy weighing and feeling itself. How can I get back in control of the situation? This leads to an implosion of self-preoccupation 
that cannot enter into communion with the other for the moment. Only after we have learned to live undefended can we immediately, or at least more quickly, stand with and for the other and for the moment. And he talks about this being a a day-by-day struggle. And I would say that it can definitely be like an hour-by-hour struggle. So basically what we're doing is we're just relaxing this tight, death-like grip we have on control. And so in an undefended life, with that intention, we are meeting the moment in a way that is more, it's more vulnerable, it's more unbuffered, it's more raw. And when we do that, there is a greater intimacy with reality. We have a more intimate encounter with reality, with whatever it is that's arising. And even if we just do this for a moment or two a day, it is a gesture towards that. It is a gesture towards the undefended state. And when we do that, when we are able to do that, we allow so much more of life to touch us. And I think that these are moments of grace when we allow life to touch us so deeply, when we are more vulnerable, basically, more unbuffered. And sometimes we're talking about what's out here, what's in the moment. That also applies to ourselves. So living undefended applies to ourselves because sometimes we are defended towards ourselves. We're defended against feeling. We do not allow ourselves to feel how much grief we have, how disappointed we felt, how hurt we were when someone said something to us, someone that we love said something to us that hurt us and maybe they didn't even know it. So that whole idea of being undefended also applies to our relationship to ourselves, particularly about feeling. We do not want to be defended against feeling. And I'm going to talk more about this in a little bit. So I want to move into talking about some qualities of being a spiritual warrior. And and I just need to say that this is not an exhaustive list. I'm not trying to list every single quality I can possibly think of. There are many. I just came up with a few that were meaningful to me at this time, and hopefully they will be meaningful to you as well. And when I open it up a little bit later on, I would be interested in hearing what you all come up with too, what are qualities that you come up with as well. And I want to read a quote from the absolutely brilliant mythologist, Joseph Campbell. It's such a rich quote. And in his quote, he uses the archetype of the hero. However, I'm going to make a few comments about it, and I just want to say I'm switching archetypes, and I'm going to talk about the warrior, and I understand that they are different archetypes, but I think that there's overlap there. So I'm going to read it as he wrote it as the hero, but I'm going to talk about it as the warrior. And I also want to use this quote as a jumping off point to say um, a couple of other things that are not directly related to the quote. So here is Joseph Campbell. We have not even risked the adventure alone. 
for the heroes of all time have gone before us. The labyrinth is thoroughly known. We have only to follow the thread of the hero path, and where we had thought to find an abomination, we shall find a god. Where we have thought to slay another, we shall slay ourselves. Where we had thought to travel outward, we shall come to the center of our own existence. Where we had thought to be alone, we shall be with all the world. I think that's a fabulous quote. I've been thinking about this quote and how there have been countless, there have been so many travelers on the path that have made this journey before us, before we were even born. And just as we are making the journey now, there will be countless others long after we are gone from the earth that will continue to make this the spiritual journey, that will pick up the thread and make the journey. And that there are great and have been great masters and enlightened beings from the East and the West who have powerfully transmitted their wisdom and grace and presence. And we have their profound help as guideposts. And yet it is incumbent upon us to pick up the thread and to make the journey ourselves, to venture into the unknown, making conscious what was previously unconscious and bringing to light what was held in darkness. So it takes warrior courage to make this journey and to see it through all the way to the end up until the moment of death. And we will find, many of us will find brothers and sisters and friends and like-minded people along the way that we will bond with and that we are walking side by side with. And maybe we will find spiritual communities or teachers or be drawn to the same traditions, or maybe we'll find a church. And even if we find a community of like-minded people as warriors, we need to be able to discern when to stand with the group and when to stand apart so that we are not just at the effect of following group mind and being adaptive so that we feel that we belong. And so a warrior understands the importance of knowing their own mind, is committed to that, and is committed to thinking for themselves. At the same time, a warrior is in touch with their own instincts and trusts their own instincts. And a warrior is willing to stand for and express what is true for them, even if it goes against the group. I have a reference point for this, which is why I bring it up. And I can say from my experience, it may actually take years to be able to do that. But to me, this is an aspect of being a warrior, is to be able to actually speak, express, and stand for oneself in that way. Going back to Richard Rohr, he says that in the second half of life, 
What is more important than belonging is to be real. And I thought that was really interesting because we all know how vital it is. We're imprinted with it. It's, it's part of the way that we're hardwired to belong to something, to someone. But what he's saying is that as we get older, what's even more important than the need to belong is the need to be real. And I think that there's really something to that. And I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and I was listening to this one podcast of these Jungian therapists and they were talking about as important as it is to belong to a group that we should not actually let the group carry our souls, that we need to belong to ourselves. That is a quality of being a warrior on the path to walk that line between belonging to others and to a group of like-minded people and to belonging to ourselves. And when he says that where we have thought to slay another, we instead shall slay ourselves, my sense about that is that he's talking about our projections and how common it is for us to project onto others and then aggress upon others. And we all do this. I mean, it's not that every time we see something, we're actually projecting, but it is common and it's something that we all do. And so when we slay ourselves, we are actually withdrawing those projections and we are working with ourselves rather than seeing it as being something out there. And I think that goes along with this thing of this warrior thinking for themselves and a warrior knowing their own minds. So I want to read another quote from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. It's from Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior, which came out many years ago in 1984. He says, when you awaken your heart, you find to your surprise that your heart is empty. Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible and solid. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against someone or fallen possessively in love, but that is not awakened heart. If you search for awakened heart, if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it, there is nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. Rather, the experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There is no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is raw and tender, and so personal. I don't think Trungpa is saying that we need to walk around like a bleeding wound, you know, being being a sponge for everything and everyone, not having proper boundaries or uh, means of psychic and emotional protection, if that's what's needed in the circumstance. That's what Gurdjieff called idiot compassion which is compassion that has no discrimination. Rather, this tender heart of sadness, which is the heart of a warrior, simply occurs because our heart is open. 
And we love the things of this world and we love them wholeheartedly, profoundly, and passionately, even though they are fleeting and they will die. In the last talk that I did, I read a line from a 12th century poem that says, it is holy to love what death can touch. And so the warrior understands this because the human condition is one of impermanence. And impermanence is what informs a warrior's life and action. And along with that, a warrior does not turn away from suffering. A warrior's heart stays open in the face of suffering, whether that suffering is physical or emotional, or even the suffering of people that are lost in delusion and lies and confusion. A warrior's heart stays open. And this is profound. This is profound to have our hearts stay open in the face of suffering. This is another example and another way of living an undefended life. So a warrior fully feels the impact of their own death and turns towards this and lets the set their heart on fire with fierce tenderness, with awe, and with softness. I don't know if any of you have heard of this man, Father Greg Boyle. He's based out of LA, and he has the most successful gang intervention in the world. It's called Homeboy Industries. And at this point, it's internationally known. So he's taken hundreds of kids that are in gangs that are drug addicts, that are marginalized and on the streets. And he's pulled them close and he's given them purpose and work and a way to serve their communities. And it's wildly successful. So somebody asked him in an interview, what's your secret to success? You know, this is just incredibly successful. You're known all over the world. And his answer was simply extravagant tenderness. And that really made an impression on me. It's not just tenderness, it's extravagant tenderness. So I asked myself, what is extravagant tenderness? It's tenderness that is unbridled, disarming, unreasonable, sweet, fiery, raw, fierce, and brimming with real feeling. I think it's the thread that keeps us connected to humanity and not just to humanity, but to all of creation. And if we happen to be on the receiving end of that kind of extravagant, unbridled, disarming tenderness, as I have recently experienced, I can tell you it's life-changing. It's unforgettable and it's life changing. So, the tender heart of sadness, the heart of the warrior, is another quality of being a warrior on the path. And interestingly, Trungpa says that he, he was talking about fearlessness. And he says that fearlessness is actually a product of tenderness because we have allowed the world to touch 
our raw and unbuffered hearts. So fearlessness arises out of tenderness rather than growing a thick skin and being hard and being tough, as one would imagine. Here's another quote of Trungpa's that kind of goes along with this. This is from the same book. He says, we must try to think beyond our homes, beyond the fire burning in the fireplace, beyond sending our children to school or getting to work in the morning. We must try to think how we can help this world. If we don't help, nobody will. It's our turn to help the world. So I think it goes without saying, I think we all know this, that a charity begins at home, that it begins with our children, our families, having right livelihood, being reliable and responsible, whether we are a mother, a father, whether we work out in the world, and also to create sanctuary in our homes. I think all of those things come first, but it actually doesn't stop there. And that's what it's saying, because we are citizens of the world. And I find it ironic that through this pandemic, that so many of us have been more isolated. Some of us have been sequestered at home for months at a time. And probably for many of us, we've been less socially interactive than we've been in our whole lives. And yet, there's a way in which we've connected with the world more now than ever. And there's greater inclusivity and there's greater awareness of diversity of people that are from non-white cultures, people with non-white skin. And I just have to say, hallelujah, hallelujah to that. And Michael Mead, who some of you may know about, who is this amazing storyteller and mythologist, he says, we are a witness to the collapse of worldviews, institutions, and of systems. One side of the door is characterized by collapse. The other side of the door is characterized by renewal. And he says that truth and beauty are always on the side of renewal. We are witnesses of the collapse which also makes us potential agents of the renewal. There's a story, it's just a short little story called The Woman Who Weaves the World. And the story goes that there is an old woman and she's sitting in her cave and she's watching the garment of the world just unravel before her very eyes. So in a sense, she's like a conscious witness to the collapse of things that were previously held together and had meaning that no longer do, just like we were talking before about things just falling apart. And because her eyes are open, she sees this loose thread and intuitively she picks up the thread and she has a vision. We can say she is in this place of, like I was saying before, she's in a place of creative gestation of the fertile feminine darkness. So she picks up a thread and she has a vision. And as soon as she has this vision, it's like she has a vision of something that's new, that has new meaning, that's imbued with vision and creativity and new life. And so she begins 
to reweave the world from that loose thread. And so we are her. We're her. And as warriors, we are willing to be conscious witnesses, to consciously witness the unraveling of things that were previously held together that no longer have meaning. It can be an idea. It could be something in our lives, something that we've been doing, something in the world. It could be anything like that. And we are all living through this time of radical change. So a warrior understands this principle that creativity comes out of chaos. It comes out just like we were talking about before. It comes out of things falling apart. And not only that, but we find the energy of recreation and rebirth actually embedded in things that have fallen apart in the chaos. So getting back to Trungpa's quote, we can help the world by consciously witnessing what is going on, by witnessing the unraveling, and by picking up a thread of that unraveling to reweave the world, to reweave a new vision. And again, I want to emphasize that this is not just what's going on in the world and politically and the pandemic and all that, but in our own lives as well. Another quality of a warrior, to live a fully embodied life. So what does this mean, to live a fully embodied life? So as I've been saying throughout this talk, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts and I was listening to yet another podcast. It was an interview with a man named Norman Brannon. I've never heard of him, but he's a musician and he's a a writer and he was uh, in the punk rock scene. I think he was in a punk rock band and he was talking about his life and how he was brought up in this fundamentalist Pentecostal church. And he had a violent and abusive mother. And he talked about how he learned the survival strategy of dissociation, which I'm sure a number of us are familiar with. Children can't process trauma. So you just check out. You check out emotionally. You leave your body. You check out as much as you can because it's too painful. So he's talking about this. And when he leaves home, He became very interested in the Hare Krishna movement, and he was hanging out with them, and they were talking about this teaching that you are not the body. That was one of the first teachings he heard from them. You are not the body. And he just went, these are my people. This really works for me. And the reason that it worked for him is because it validated that survival strategy of dissociating from the emotional and physical trauma that he had when he was a child. And he didn't have to feel his feelings because you are not the body. And I have to say that this teaching is true. This is a spiritual truth. So I'm not negating that at all. It's just, I'm talking about the ways in which we try and spiritually bypass that. That's the point I'm trying to make. So he goes on to say that he experienced other traumas as an adult, one of which was a pretty serious car accident where I believe he was hospitalized. And he came to realize that, in fact, spiritual life is about 
embodiment and that he needed to allow himself to feel all the things that he was trying to dissociate and run away from. So to be a warrior is to have the courage to step fully into embodied life, to allow ourselves to feel everything, all the sensations, the places where we ache, the energetic blocks, the emotions that we have shut away, the hardened places in our hearts, our breath patterns. How do we breathe? How deeply do we inhale? Do we hold our breath and not exhale? Just to learn the language of the body. I have some great quotes about that. This is from Bob Marley, who really knew how to tell it like it was. And he said, who feels it, knows it. And this is from the Dalai Lama. The purpose of life isn't to transcend the body, but to embody the transcendent. And from Carl Jung, the highest truth grows from the deepest roots of the body and not from the spirit. So I feel fortunate to be on a path and have a teacher who taught Kaya Sadhana which is that the body is the vehicle of transformation and that spiritual practice happens in and through the body. But for me, I have the same survival strategy that this man I was talking about just a couple of minutes ago, this survival strategy of dissociating. I have that same survival strategy along with this tendency to be adaptive. So for me, it's a lifelong practice to understand this teaching. So the longer I'm on the path, the more I discover the gems and the truths within the body, as well as its obstacles and its blocks. So I've recently become interested in the ways that we store trauma, both um, personal trauma and intergenerational and ancestral trauma as well. And one of my friends told me about Thomas Hubel. Some of you may have heard of him. He's from Austria. He's a a trauma therapist. He's become internationally known. He just came out with a book. And he's also considered a, a contemporary spiritual teacher. And he talks about how trauma is frozen life. That trauma actually shuts down part of our embodiment. So it actually limits our capacity to relate to life around us. And it reduces, it just reduces what we perceive in life. This is what he says. He says, we have been imprinted by a world that is hurt. The traumatized world seems to be normal. Our nervous systems grew up in a fragmented world. So we learn that's how the world is. Undigested information, sensation, and experience overshadows presence. So to become fully embodied is to be willing to look at what is frozen in us. In what areas are we not fully embodied? 
He also goes on to say that, and I really love this, he says, a lot of spiritual practice is to digest the undigested part of life. So the more we digest, the more present we are to life, like we were talking about before in meeting the moment in a raw, unbuffered and vulnerable way. We are just more present to life and we allow more of life to touch us. I want to read a poem by Rumi. It's called The Guest House. This being human is like a guest house. Every day, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness or awakening comes as an unexpected visitor. And we are to welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of all its furniture. Still, we are to treat each guest honorably, for he may be simply clearing you out for some new delight. A dark thought, the shame, the untruth, the malice. Meet them all at the door laughing and invite them in because this world is constantly recreating itself. We should be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond and as a secret agent of creation. So I just have one more thing that I want to talk about briefly, and then I want to open it up and and hear from you. Another quality of being a warrior on the path is just to be able to let go. And I can testify that I've had a lot of personal experience of this in the past year. And it really sounds pretty simple. Just let go. Just let go. And it is simple. But it's certainly not easy. And there are times in life where life lets go for us, where people that we love are taken from us, or we lose a job that we were very invested in and identified with. There's all kinds of examples of that. There are natural letting go times in life, like when our children leave home, when they leave home to go live their own lives, or maybe when we retire, we've worked at a job for our entire adult life, and now it's time to retire. That's a a letting go as well. That's a letting go of an identity and an identification. So yes, we can't go through life without knowing something and learning something about letting go. However, A warrior cultivates this in everyday life. A warrior cultivates this because there are numerous opportunities in our daily lives to practice this. And we really want to practice letting go. We want to be able to let go of resentments. We want to be able to let go of grudges of people that have hurt us and maybe have deeply wronged us. I think that as warriors, 
it is incumbent upon us to work with this. I'm not saying we have to be perfect and just all of a sudden be able to magically let go. There's some real work involved in it. But I think if we have an intention about it and we have our eyes open about the opportunities that we have in daily life, we will find that it will get easier and we will learn so much about forgiveness. And one of the reasons, I mean, there are a number of reasons why it's so important to be able to work with us. But one reason is that we want to be able to let go when we have the physical strength and the stamina and we have the the mental intelligence and clarity while we're not overcome with a chronic illness or anything like that. We want to work with it while we are strong and we have the stamina. And I just want to say that this is a big theme for me, and perhaps it's a a theme for some of you too, and that we can learn a lot about letting go from the natural world. Like where I grew up in the Midwest, there are these beautiful deciduous trees. And just to watch in the autumn, just to watch the way the trees let go of their leaves so willingly and so gracefully, I think we can learn so much for ourselves and for our own lives. So I think I'm going to stop talking. Would someone like to say something? Question? Comment? I think we see this idea in all spiritual traditions of losing one's life to find one's life. I just think that's such a significant thing. Yes. Um, I grew up in a not very nurturing environment where emotions were not okay and was shut down over and over. And after my father's passing, that was, it was happening again. It was bringing up a lot of old trauma, having an interest in somatic experiencing as a form of therapy. Um, But the body keeps the score. I'm sure you probably heard of books like that really talks more in depth about trauma and how the body holds on to it. But I felt like today was the first time I was able to reconnect with myself. And the more I work on practices like these, I feel like the more the river within me is coming closer to the surface and I can access my emotions and be okay with them. So I just wanted to share that as an encouragement if anyone else is struggling with the issues with feeling to just keep on that path. and. Just thank you for sharing all the things that you've shared today that touched me deeply. Wow. (laughs) I'm touched by you too. You know, when you lose someone you love, your heart just goes out to everybody in the world that's lost someone they've loved. You know, your heart just gets so raw and big and vulnerable. And I really appreciate your vulnerability. Thank you so much for speaking up. And grief does, it most certainly does have a way of connecting us. Every single day I've met some person, whether it's on a trail or at the grocery store, who has been through their own grief journey and we've shared with each other. And it's been a very heart opening and just very like validating experience. It's been something that um, 
I've, I've learned to allow myself to feel things that perhaps in the past I might have just said some kind of spiritual principle or, or principle of Dharma, which I love and which are true, but not necessarily just where I'm at in my own body and in my own life and just trying to get more real about that for myself, about where I am really at and what is really true for me. So that was, it was very courageous of you to speak up. Thank you. Is it possible for you to state um, Carl Jung's quote? I didn't quite understand that. I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind repeating that if you have it handy there. Yes. He said, the highest truth grows from the deepest roots of the body and not from the spirit. That's the quote, that truth lives in the body and doesn't come from some more ethereal spirit, place of spirit. It's it's actually lives in the body. The body knows. That's amazing. It's hard for me to to take that in. I've never heard that quote of his before, but it makes total sense because when you think of what our cells carry, our cells know all we've been through, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly kind of thing. And it is amazing what we all carry in our bodies and the weight that that puts on on us. Yeah. And this quote from um, Thomas Hubel, when he says that we've been born into a traumatized world, it's not just that we have our own personal trauma or ancestral or intergenerational trauma, that the whole world is traumatized. Look at what's just happened in the world in the past year let alone all the other traumas that have happened throughout time and wars and all of that and genocide. I mean, the whole world is traumatized. So our nervous systems, in a sense, think that it's normal. It's like we've adapted to it, but he's saying this is not real life and that it is not true embodiment, that it's just something that we've adapted to, but that actually what we're called to do is to look at just what is frozen in us. What is it in us that does not respond to life, that can't open to life? I think vulnerability is just becoming more and more important. I think about all the ways in which I have protected myself from being vulnerable again We should have intelligence about it, and we should have discrimination and discernment. But I have come to feel and see the value of a deeper level of vulnerability in the way that I engage with life. I I think a lot of what we're holding go past generations, all the people who have come before us, whether it's wars they've experienced trauma maybe we can't even begin to imagine but we're all carrying that it's in the energy it's it's you know it's it's with us i gotta read this quote it's sitting on my desk this quote this is from michael mead he says the wound in one person can become the door through which everyone can find the center of life again isn't that beautiful 
I keep this on my desk. And every time I sit down at my desk, the first thing I do is I read that quote. I just absolutely love it. It's just so full of truth. In the beginning, you mentioned that we have to listen to our bodies what is real. For me, that is always like a little bit tricky to really remember my body in in with breathing and with the body, the sensations in my body, because I can't trust my mind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My mind can me tell me everything is real. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so yeah, this is for me like more and more important to get out of my mind and not listen to all my thoughts, but has nothing to do what is really going on in reality. Sometimes it's something as simple as just paying attention to the breath. It's so accessible. We're always doing it. And we don't have to have a separate time to do it. We don't have to say, I'm too busy. I can't do this right now because we're always breathing. So the breath is very, very accessible. And I've been paying a lot of attention to my breath lately because sometimes uh, grief takes your breath away. You feel like you can't breathe. Our minds can help point us in the right directions, but the mind can also really deceive and act like something's real. That's not real at all. So it seems right to me to, to come back to the body and the sensations of the body. The body that actually feels real to me is the body of nature. And I was really kind of getting the broader vision of the body of humanity and the body of nature and the body of the nation. And there are all these bodies that you can tap into and connect with the nervous system. And that's why the healing process just seems to go on so long because aside from our own individual traumas and things that we need to heal, there's the extended body of others that it just seems like it all needs to be healed. Yeah, thank you. Who else? If I understood you correctly, um, about when you either belong to a group or Sangha or any other entity, your identity doesn't get lost in it. You don't become that. It's okay to like be your own person. Well, I always have to question my instincts, my feelings, my thinking, even to the point of who am I? But my spiritual practice, my aim and everything, I think really helps me um, keep me in the middle. And it's just a struggle. And that's my, uh, maybe my perception of the warrior is that person who lives in that struggle and continues that with that struggle. It's not for every, not everybody does it. For me, it takes a discipline and I fall off reading or meditating. And I just thought I'd share that with you. It can be a struggle. I think there's a big learning curve for us to be able to at the same time, find strength, refuge, sanctuary in a group, and yet be able 
to know ourselves, maybe that we do belong to a group, but we also belong to ourselves. And sometimes it's so easy to get lost in the group. And I'm not saying either that our instincts are always right. But I think that we have to be stalking ourselves about that. I know that for myself, I have made certain mistakes because I ignored and distrusted my instincts when I should not have. So coming to that place of inner knowing, of knowing our own minds and trusting our instincts, I think is not like we just suddenly arrive there. I think it's a process and, and maybe it's a lifelong process. But I think that the point is that the, the struggle with all of that is, is a struggle of a warrior. In the tradition that I'm in, Bodhisattva means spiritual warrior, one who wars on their own fear, ignorance, confusion, uh, and and so on, to be uh, fully present for others. I really deeply appreciated the way you spoke about it tonight. <laughs> 